When I was 11 years old, I made a decision for Jesus. I said yes, I, I walked down an aisle down to the front of the church, uh, shook hands with the preacher because I wanted what everyone else around me had. I wanted God in me. I just didn't want God to be, I didn't want to be an outsider with God. So I said yes, absolutely, Jesus, save me. And because I belonged to a small Baptist church, uh, about a, in Baptist circles back then, when you made a decision like that, typically at the end of a service, there was always an invitation given. Uh, within 30 days, they would want to make sure that you were baptized. And so uh, not unlike this church right here, I wish I had a picture of the First Baptist Church of Gas City, Indiana. It looked just like this. So you got the pews, you've got the hymns and, and information on one side, you've got the organ on the other, and you have a baptismal, and our baptismal was hand-painted to look like the River Jordan. And the way it worked is you would be given a white robe to go over your Sunday clothes. The preacher had a white robe, and he would fully immerse you and baptize you. And that's what happened to me. And the only thing I remember of that day is the little room off to the side in the back. And he put on these giant waders that went up to about mid-chest, mid and him telling me a story about the Sunday that he had a hole in him. <laughs> and didn't know <laughs> and had to dismiss the church from the baptismal because he couldn't get out and were full of water, okay? So there are a lot of different ways that baptism is practiced in America and throughout the world, right? Um, some of you come from Catholic or Lutheran or uh, Methodist backgrounds, and infant baptism is, is part and parcel of it. Uh, and the way infant baptism works is uh, parents bring their infant child to the church. Usually water is sprinkled or poured over the baby's head, and it's an act of faith on the parent's part that someday, one day, that child will walk fully in faith. Um, and typically in those traditions, you have something called confirmation around 10, 11, 12, 13 years old to make sure that, yes, are you signing on with Jesus? Where are you with that? Uh, and so that's one way that baptism takes place in America. Another is what I, what I refer to as just traditional baptism. You're given a white robe, everybody's in white robes, and uh, this is a, this just about as typical Baptist baptismal as you can get. Um, and it's done full immersion. So if you grew up Baptist or Pentecostal or went to a Bible church, um, chances are uh, you were baptized in this way. Ironically or coincidentally, these kinds of baptistries that are located in these Baptist churches and, and Bible churches are almost identical to the ones used 2,000 years ago, these mikveh, these baptismal pools, where you would step down, you'd have steps down into a pool of water about four feet deep so that you could be fully immersed. Uh, another way that uh, Americans kind of do baptism today is what I would call like contemporary baptism. Typically you get like a black t-shirt that says forgiven or alive or something like that on there and it's a big party and there's usually food and a band and a celebration and sometimes the, the, they'll bring in pools inside the sanctuary uh, or have them outside in the parking lot and that's just another way. Here in Jessamine County, there are still a couple of churches that will take you down to the river. Uh, and if you want to get a good old-fashioned uh, river baptism, you can do that, as I went down to the river to pray, right? <laughs> and so uh, there are lots of different ways that baptism gets done 
in the various faith traditions in America. And because of that, and because there's so many different ways that Christians baptize, sometimes there's some confusion. And I get it. So today, I wanna make a case for why baptism is still important. It's still the public way of identifying with Jesus. It's an identifying mark of a Christian. If you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, you get a sense that baptism is important. In part because at the very end of the Old Testament, one of the last things in the Old Testament is, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. We're told in the New Testament that Elijah did in fact come in the person of John the Baptist. Matthew 11, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. This Elijah, this John the Baptist, actually baptizes the Messiah, the anointed one. And there are several accounts of this. This is from Matthew. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him saying, oh, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This Messiah, this anointed one, right before he left, and, and as he gave marching orders to his followers, this is what he says in Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So he commands his followers, make disciples. And as you're making disciples, teach them and baptize them. Now, baptism is a Greek word that we anglicize. Um, kind of like Christos. Christos is another word we anglicize, meaning we just take the Greek word and we make it into English. So we say Jesus Christ, Yesu Christos, Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, I always thought Jesus had a middle initial because uh, I lived with someone who swore in my house a lot and they would always say Jesus and then an initial Christ. I didn't figure out that was really bad until I said that in my parent, grandparents' presence one day. And I learned real quick, that's very inappropriate, right? And so, I, you know, I, I didn't know. And so the funny thing is about Christos, right? Christos simply means the anointed one, the Messiah. So if we were actually translating it, we would say Jesus, the anointed one, or Jesus Messiah, but we say Jesus Christ. Baptism is another anglicized Greek word. It comes from this word, baptizo. And baptizo means to immerse, to wash, to dip, to plunge, to sink, 
to drench. So John the Baptist could be called John the Washer, John the Dipper, John the Plunger, John the Drencher, right? John could rightly be called those things. Now, baptizo is used a couple of ways. And the first way appears, uh, has to do with the ritual washings that the Jews would do. And I wanna share this passage from Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 37 and 38. When, as Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. The Pharisee was surprised to notice that Jesus did not first wash, but Jesus didn't baptizo before the meal. <gasps> what did he do? What's going on here? Well, this was the house of a Pharisee. If you want a good story, just read Luke 11. Here is a dinner party gone horribly wrong. Jesus is invited to the home of this noted Pharisee. He doesn't baptizo before the meal. Everybody's like, what? And then he insults the host. A friend of the host steps in and is like, you can't say that. And then Jesus insults that person too. It's like a giant social train wreck. Luke chapter 11, just read it. And so Jesus doesn't baptizo. Now, it could mean the way the NLT translates it today, ceremony hand washing. So a servant would come along and pour water over your hands before the meal. It could also mean, there are a few commentators that believe this, and I kind of lean this second way. So this is just Max now. Um, good Pharisees around that time would baptizo in a mikveh before the evening meal. In other words, they would fully clean themselves before, they would wash before an evening meal. Um, if you know anything about the first century and Roman roads, and especially things in and around Jerusalem, the roads are dirty, muddy, the animals poop, there's human waste, it's nasty. And sometimes if you're reclining at table, et cetera, your feet are kind of close to the head of the person next to you. I mean, it's just nasty. When Jenny and I moved into our first home, we had the money to put in all new carpet because it was only like a 1,200 square foot home. And we recarpeted everything and, and it was very, very light cream carpet. And we had my youth pastor at the time over and his wife and God bless him, Pastor Brett had stepped in some dog dew, come in the front door of my house, walked through the living room the kitchen and all the way through the family room before he realized that there's now this giant trail of dog dew behind him. Ah! <laughs> right? Ah! Nasty. And so I think, I think, this is my own personal opinion, that Jesus showed up to this meal dirty and stinky, which kind of gives bigger import to when he says later, oh, you're clean on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. I may be filthy on the outside, but I'm clean on the inside, Jesus would imply, right? And that's what God wants, okay? So the first way that baptizo is used in the New Testament has to do with this ritual washing. The second way, and this is the passage we're gonna be into, is Acts chapter 19. Uh, and I'm just gonna go through it verse by verse. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them? No, we haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. 
And what baptism did you experience, he asked. And they said, the baptism of John. So the second way that baptizo is used in the New Testament has to do with baptizing someone. That's the second way it's used. And it crops up a lot in the, in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. Paul has traveled about 1,000 miles, if you go all the way back to Antioch, to get to um, Ephesus, where he is now. And he's faced rivers and dangers, and he's encountered some men who have never heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, they had been given the baptism of John the Baptist. That didn't necessarily mean that they had been in Israel and had actually been baptized by John the Baptist. Apparently, the baptism of John the Baptist was a thing in the first century, and other people would do the baptism of John the Baptist, and so uh, it was kind of, a, of an indicator, a step of faith, which to me makes sense. If you're a Greek or an Hellenistic person, you kind of know the Roman gods aren't really, you know, that's not a thing. The Jews, they insist that there's one God, there's something about them, but boy, are they weird, right? And so there's some barrier stuff, and along is this baptism of repentance and anticipation of the anointed one. Um, so they have received the baptism of John, but they have not heard of the Holy Spirit. Now for Paul, the Apostle Paul, there's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Everything the Christian does is done in the Spirit. We walk the Christian life in the Spirit. An indicator that we are with Jesus is the fact that we have the fruit of the Spirit. And you can read about this in his letter to the people of Galatians, uh, okay? So verse four, Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later meaning Jesus. So the baptism of John is preparatory. It points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of what John the Baptist preached about. Jesus is the true anointed one, the true Messiah. Now these 12 men are treated like first-time converts, and that's where we pick it up. Uh, verse five, as soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. Now, Apollos, who was with them, he wasn't rebaptized because apparently he had the Holy Spirit. But these 12 men hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say they weren't in Christian community. They weren't involved in the church of Ephesus. If they had been involved in the church of Ephesus, they would have heard about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but they hadn't. And so they're, in that sense, they're kind of outsiders. And they're rebaptized and they're prayed over to receive the Holy Spirit. And in a scene that kind of is supposed to remind you of Acts 2, they speak in languages, tongues, and they prophesy. So when you see this, when you read this, you hear this, you're supposed to think, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth, he's the anointed one. Yep, ding, 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 ding. Now the good news about this, one of the things I see in this passage, because of Apollos, because of these 12 men, is that our understanding of salvation sometimes takes steps, and it's a bit of a journey, isn't it, right? And so, uh, that's good news. Our understanding of salvation may come in stages. It was true of Apollos. It was true of these 12 men. It was true of Paul the apostle, the 12 disciples, and it's true of many of us in this room. So in light of this passage, in light of what some thing the scriptures have to say about baptism, let me ask a question. 
Where are you in your understanding of salvation and allegiance to Jesus? Where are you? Where are you in this? Some of you might rightly say, hey, look, I'm a bit of a skeptic. I kinda, I'm interested in Jesus, but to be honest, I'm not sure he's divine. I'm not sure what I think about all of that. Okay. Some of you might say, well, Jesus, man, I like him. Like him a lot. I like him like I like Gandhi. Man, if people actually lived what Jesus taught, woo, the world would be a better place, but nobody listens to the man. (laughs) Maybe that's where you are. But for some of you, you would say, Jesus, I'm all in, baby. I signed on the dotted line. I've drank the Kool-Aid. Jesus is my only hope, okay? Where are you in your understanding of salvation and your allegiance to Jesus? And secondly, what if baptism is an important step in the life of a Christian? What if baptism isn't just some religious act from the first century that somehow managed to hang on for 2,000 years? What if there's more to that to that, all right? Let me give some practical ways to kind of take hold of baptism in a sense, okay? The first is don't throw away baptism as some kind of unimportant ritual. Don't do that. We're also commanded to observe the Lord's Supper, and we do that every month. Eat his flesh, drink his blood. Come on, it's kind of creepy. And we do it because we're commanded to do it. So don't throw away baptism as something that's unimportant. Uh, Andy Stanley, many years ago, posed the question. He says, um, he basically said, isn't it kind of odd that fully clothed, you get all wet, and that's somehow some kind of spiritual religious act? He goes, shouldn't that have died out in the first century? And of course, he's wanting the answer to be no, it shouldn't have died out in the first century. And I would say the same thing. Baptism is an identifying mark of a Christian. If you're a parent, I want to encourage you, and you've got kids younger than, say, age 12, talk to your kids about baptism. Tell them your story. If you grew up Catholic or Methodist and you were baptized as an infant and then for some reason you got baptized again later, you know, tell them the things that are part of your story. Or if you, you, know, you had a, a moment of faith and at a camp and then you were baptized, like tell them your story and talk about what it meant for you and also share who is Jesus to you with your kids. Have these conversations. They can handle it. Trust me, they can. Uh, if you've got, if you're a parent and you've got babies or toddlers at home, I would encourage you to write a note and tuck it away for the day that maybe your kid would make a public profession of faith and be baptized and give it to them on that day. Uh, A note that says, I'm praying that you will know the Jesus that I know, that you will surrender to him, that you will understand that your standing with God has nothing to do with your performance. It's what Jesus did on your behalf. And I want this for you because it's meant so much to me, right? However you want to express that, write that note down um, and then give it to them later. Um, If you're all in, if you're in that category, I've signed the dotted line, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, but you've never been baptized. I don't know if you know this, but we have a swimming pool that's just right out there. We don't have a baptismal, but we have a swimming pool. And so we'll baptizo you later this month. You should talk to me. Baptism is a public declaration and a new association. It's saying, I'm with Jesus, and I'm with Jesus' people. And it's also a new point of identity. I'm a Christian. I'm a Jesus follower. And it's full of symbolism. I mean, 
I could do like seven weeks on baptism. And there's some rich stuff written by theologians and even Paul. I mean, in 1 Corinthians, it's like an image of Jesus' death and resurrection, buried with Christ, risen with Christ. Um, In Romans, it's an image of the new life that we have in Christ. Again, I could go on and on. A year ago, uh, Jenny and I redecorated our family room, which for us meant we put new paint on the walls, we bought a couple of pieces of furniture and some lamps. And then we put up new pictures. And one of the things that Jenny did, which I'm so glad she did, is she put a picture of each of our kids getting baptized. And I've gotten snark for it, right? But there's a picture of each of them on the day that they got baptized. And I can tell you as a parent that, like, that's a meaningful image for me, right? So as parents, I hope it's the case for you that I know that you worry about things like, Will my kid, how much money will my kid make? Will they be a doctor, a lawyer? Will they go to college? Um, You know, how will they do with this sport thing that they're doing? Will they get on first string? You know, and there's all these kind of stressors that go with all the things about kids. But at the end of the day, none of that, in my opinion, matters as much as them having a faith of their own, trusting God no matter what, and just following Jesus. And so um, baptism isn't gonna save you If you've ever heard that from another preacher, we should have copy this week. Baptism doesn't save you, Jesus does. But baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's basically you letting other people know, my only hope is Jesus Christ and nothing else.